This is the Cave Pig Morning Zoo. <laughs> this is Eric with Caveman John. There's like four of us on here. <laughs> One of okay. us is responsible for wacky sound effects. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> My neighbor has been jackhammering for the last 72 hours. It starts at 6.30 a.m. and goes until 8 o'clock at night. I am actually going insane. <laughs> In the 80s, there was a band that I loved immensely. And you're going to giggle when you hear the name. If you remember the band at all, the Sisters of Mercy. So in the 80s, the Sisters of Mercy was a complete band, uh, like a four-piece rock and roll outfit. And they were doing this weird gothic rock. And from all reports, the lead singer was an absolute diva. They recorded one full album, and they had taken some time to plan a second album, and they just had a creative falling out. The entire rest of the band left all at once in a big fight with the lead singer. Andrew Eldridge. Andrew Eldridge. He can sue us too. Okay, continue. <laughs> <laughs> they went off and started recording together. And after months of work, they were about to release an album under the name of the Sisterhood, so as to advertise their relationship to the previous Sisters of Mercy. Andrew Eldritch heard about this plan and in 24 hours recorded an entire album and released it under the name The Sisterhood. Just out of spite. Just to squat on the name, just to keep them from having it and block them out of it. They went on to become the mission and then turns out they couldn't use that name either, so they became the Mission UK. Yeah, because there's already uh, the Mission in the US. Correct. <laughs> so, and this is known as a spite album. And there are many other examples from what I understand, but this is my favorite. This is my ultimate no fuck you. This is, <laughs> this is the best example of somebody putting work into screwing somebody else over. Until last night. Until I, well, until I found out about the 1963, excuse me, 67 Casino Royale. All I could think about while watching this was that album by Andrew Rodgers, which is, I should mention, terrible. Uh, it's a horrible album. It was put together in 24 hours. Of course it's bad. So I saw the Sisters of Mercy play um, a few years back. Yep, I don't know. me too. In the, like, in the two, well, yeah. I shouldn't say I saw them. It I was heard, smoke. I it heard was them. <laughs> you, you saw shapes. It was one of the... I heckled one of my favorite bands ever for putting on a terrible show. We were at the same show. It was so bad because they all they did was they put out vast amounts of fog. I have never seen smoke this thick. And you could not see the band. All you could see was vague shapes in the fog. I want to point out, Eric and I didn't see the same show. I saw the show in Minneapolis. You presumably saw it somewhere else. They did it all over. Yeah, this like, was in Ohio that I saw it. Yeah. yeah. It, oh, my God. It was, it was, it was terrible. It, I had... 50-year-old goths turning and giving me the eye of doom for heckling the Sisters of Mercy. Like, I love these guys. Don't give... Oh, but the opening band was amazing. If anybody bothers to go look back, Hypernova was an Iranian rock band. A lot of fun. I enjoyed the hell out of them. 
and I got to talk to them during, <laughs> in between, you know, when I was taking heckling breaks, I walked over and talked to them for a while and uh, they were great guys. Previous to this, my favorite Iranian band was Fearless Iranians from Hell, the short-lived punk band that sang some songs in Farsi and released albums like Blow Up the Embassy and Die for Allah. <laughs> Heroes die and spite albums are real. And apparently spite movies are a thing as well, is where I was going with that. Speaking of heroes dying, I have a quote I want to read, and I want to read this before we get too into James Bond, because it deals with both Tarzan and James Bond. And it's, it's a quote I want to think about as we watch future James Bond and or Tarzan films. This was written by Alan Moore, the comic book writer who wrote The Watchmen. Before Watchmen came out, Watchmen came out that later that same year, uh, 1986. And it was his introduction to Frank Miller's The Dark Knight Returns, which was a reinvention of Batman. He said, and I'm sorry to quote at length, but I think it's important, quote, We demand new heroes, the fictional heroes of the past, while still retaining all their charm and power and magic, have had some of their credibility stripped away forever as a result of the new sophistication in their audience. With the benefit of hindsight and a greater understanding of anthropoid behavior patterns, science fiction author Philip Jose Farmer was able to demonstrate quite credibly that the young Tarzan would almost certainly have indulged in sexual experimentation with chimpanzees, and that he would just as surely have had none of the aversion to eating human flesh that Edgar Rice Burroughs attributed to him. As our political and social consciousness continues to evolve, Alan Quartermain stands revealed as just another white imperialist out to exploit the natives, and we begin to see that the overriding factor in James Bond's psychological makeup is his utter hatred and contempt for women. Whether most of us would prefer to enjoy the above-mentioned gentleman's adventures without spoiling things by considering the social implications is beside the point. The fact remains that we have changed along with our society, and that were such characters created today, they would be subject to the most extreme suspicion and criticism. Unquote. Okay, not to get too heavy right at the start of what's supposed to be a comedy, but I'm going to give a little background here on the year 1967, so we can see how much has really changed since the last Casino Royale. If you remember the highlights of the year, that year, the president had advised against going into Vietnam. Well, now in 1967, we're deep in it. In January, Ronald Reagan became the governor of California. Green Bay Packers beat Kansas City in Super Bowl I. The Vietnam War was still going badly. Apollo 1 blew up on the launch pad, killing three astronauts. District Attorney Jim Garrison in New Orleans said that he would solve what he considered a conspiracy to kill President Kennedy. In March, Jimmy Hoffa went to prison. April 10th, A Man for All Seasons took Best Picture, starring Paul Schofield, Orson Welles, and Robert Shaw. And then April 13th, three days later in London, this film was released. The production was, frankly, a mess. It, um, no. <laughs> this was the first James Bond script that was acquired in 62 or 
I mean, well, it was acquired way back when the first Casino Royale was made, but but they started to make it into a film before Dr. No. So a long time before it, it took it years and years and years to get made. It went through numerous writers and redress. It wasn't originally a satire. It was originally a serious Bond film and nearly everybody signed on to it thinking it was. Uh, the star David Niven was Ian Fleming's original choice for Bond, but they had offered Sean Connery this role, which he turned down, thankfully, but he then took the role in Dr. No. So Connery had some good sense. Albert Broccoli's Dr. No premiered in 62. Uh, this film had a $6 million budget, went over by $6 million, so it went over to $12 million. Where did it go? Where was, where was $12 million? Even, like, where did they spend $12 million on this? It was all spent on drugs. It, I'm that, telling you. That may be it. I mean, this film okay. is a big punch ball it, mess. Yeah. Can, this podcast. <laughs> but have before this we... at least be as orderly as the film itself, right? Like, You know, it's... It's so interesting to hear that it started as a serious film and then went over to satire because I think I went into it expecting it to be not quite as like hard into the satire direction as it was. I'd heard the reputation of the film as being a sillier Bond, not critical of Bond in its in its satire. And I guess, like, I was expecting something, you know, between Diamonds Are Forever and Austin Powers and was surprised to get something on the other side of Austin Powers. <laughs> and um, I, I, I'll, I'll wait to go into it, but just to refer back to Eric's comment about um, d diving into this idea that James Bond is really a character, you know, whose, whose center is hatred of women, that that came through in this film in a big way and i was really surprised to see the critique like so so explicit in in this film and so i was horrified by some of it some of it is just you know like the filmmaking is a mess but the criticism i was like i was cringe i, I was cringing throughout a lot of the film but sometimes it was because i was like oh yeah that that really is what this franchise that I love is all about. When they decided to, they didn't just go after James Bond, which they did. They didn't just go after Sean Connery. Like, no, they went after all Scottish people. Like, they just <laughs> dove in. I was sitting here like, oh, my God. Like, is this, this is... At first, I kind of had to ask, are they making fun of Sean Connery? I'm like, no, no, they're going after everyone. Just the entire north of the country is under fire because of Sean Connery. I love David Niven. Like the first few minutes before they had obviously lost control in a drug-fueled stupor, like the first few minutes of David Niven was actually kind of charming, where he, re where he kind of rebuked, like, he was just a little taken aback at what James Bond had become. I liked that part. And it also starts like an old school Sherlock Holmes, where the cops have to come to Sherlock Holmes, convince him that they need him. And he just is like, well, I don't know. And he finally agrees to do it to show them up. But, you know, they uh, and they blow up his castle. But 
Um, did did they blow up a real castle? By the way, that looked was that the twelve million dollars? Because it looked like that wasn't a miniature. Like yeah, that, that definitely looked like the twelve million dollars. <laughs> yeah, actually, just to tag onto that, was anyone else impressed by the explosions in the film? Like a lot of the special effects and the action scenes were like ridiculous and stupid, but the explosions looked great. <laughs> they just hired one eleven point five million dollar explosion guy, <laughs> and then the rest is cocaine. Like that, that one. everything. And mushrooms. Else. Don't yeah. forget the mushrooms and acid. Star salaries. I mean, you had David Niven, you had Orson Welles, you had Peter Sellers, you had Woody Allen, you had Peter O'Toole was in it. Everybody from British cinema at the time, you know, just piled in on this. It was almost as if they just signed on for cameos to get back at Bond, right? Like they, like the actors were gleefully participating in this lambasting. It was amazing. One thing that comes out in Austin Powers is how out of time he is, how a man, he's like this unfrozen, he's this man out of time, because the secret agent was so uh, passe after the Cold War. Well, this was still during the Cold War, but already Bond seemed like a relic of an earlier era. That's one of the reasons I went through the things about 1967. You know, all these things that had happened did not seem like the same world Bond came from. There was definitely, we're in a different era now. And I think that that's one thing that comes out. That's one of the more serious points that comes out of a not very serious film. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that because um, Matahari is evoked in the film. And I, at the time, you know, she would have been people's like classic, you know, mental image of what a, a sexy spy would have been, but also from the past. So yeah, it's you're you're right to point that out that they the film points to that idea that they're from from a bygone era. I looked it up when when they mentioned her. And yeah, she had died in 1917. Their daughter would have had to have been 50 at this point. <laughs> um, I hated this film. Part of it is just because I'm a Bond fan and and I hated, you know, what they did with this. But also, I mean, it was a mess. There were six directors. You know, that should tell you something right there. Um, but part of it also comes from my hatred of the 60s. I grew up, you know, having a lot of this crap shoved down my throat. And I never really liked spy parodies. And the more parody they get, the less I like them. So and with Bond, it seems like there were so many. There was in like Flint, there was the Maxwell Smart stuff. There was Austin Powers. There was Matt Helm. And and the ones like Austin Powers, I'm not a fan. You know, we've talked about how I'm not a big fan of comedies to begin with, but I don't like these 60s parodies because I'm not a fan of the 60s, except the music. I thought the music was great. The Burt Bacharach soundtrack and all that I thought was wonderful. But, okay, let's get into some of the specific characters and plot here. Sorry. Rather, I, rather I grandiose of, description, Eric. I, yeah, saying that there is a plot is giving it more credit than it deserves, to be honest, because I watched the movie and honestly, I nodded off throughout the movie because I was like, I'm not catching on to any of this. I don't fully understand what's going on. I still made some notes as I was watching it. The thing that, that cracked me up was when they started talking about the AFSD the anti-female spy device. And I was like, yep, there's the, the obvious clue 
about the hatred of women right there. Um, you know, because God forbid women are spies. But anyway, um, so, you know, I, I watched this film and yeah, it was visually entertaining. It was definitely everything the 60s was at that time. Uh, definitely, you know, drug infused um, plot. Um, a lot of the typical uh, 60s kind of slapstick one-liner humor, a lot of you know, sight gags and, and things like that, you know, and then, and then just the ran the random placement of characters that didn't make any sense. Like when Hitler was in there, like, what was the point of that? I don't know. Um, <laughs> but, and then when I was, and then this morning, as I was getting ready for our podcast today, I decided to just look at the reviews. Like, was I alone in this? Oh no, don't never I, look at the reviews. I, I did. I did. And I looked at Roger roger ebert's review yeah, yeah he said read. it was like the most indulgent movie ever made yes and, and and i was like that is the most accurate description of this film that i have read so far because it, it really was very indulgent i mean it was visually spectacular all of the women looked gorgeous bond was you know the sophisticated dude that obviously did not fit into this world and and you know was brought back into it and uh you know, and then, and then, of course, it, it had the surprise, you know, the surprise ending, which, you know, I'm not going to refrain from talking about it because the movie was made in 1967, which, by the way, was the year my dad graduated from high school. Sure, that ages me, but I don't care uh, when, you know, Woody Allen turned out to be, you know, the, the low-key bad guy that, you know, was annoying to me throughout the whole film. I'm not a Woody, Woody Allen. Woody Allen in a role where he's annoying? Yeah, I just can't get on board with him. He's one of those actors that I've tried to like him. And the more I see him on film, I don't like him. And the more I learn about him. And also, it was kind of weird watching this movie coming on the heels of watching the whole uh, Jeffrey Epstein uh, Filthy Rich series on Netflix and then seeing this. One scene, he comes home and kisses his assistant who reveals that she's actually his assistant's daughter. And and she like to totally like breezed blew off the complete uh, smooch on her face. I mean, he was just like completely planted one and she acted like it didn't even happen. You know, and, like like that's just what women do. That's what women did in the 60s. They just, you know, took one for the team and it didn't matter. They just breezed it off like it, it was no big deal. They're looking at the map of where all the spies are and David Niven says, it's a shame that secret agent has become synonymous with sex maniac. And within two seconds, they introduce Woody <laughs> Allen. <laughs> and oh, it's like, yes. Okay. And I, let me throw something else into that. Were they making fun of the original TV teleplay that had created Jimmy Bond? I wondered that when I was watching it, when they made him an American. Jimmy Bond. Jimmy Bond. Oh, they must have. They must have. That must have been been a callback. I don't know how well known that show was by that point. Um, remember, well, isn't that, that where they acquired the rights to this? Isn't like. Well, remember, Doctor No was already out. There were multiple Bond films out by the time this came out, right? That's well, yeah. why they cast her Solandris. Last night when I started watching, I was under the mistaken impression that this was the first Bond film. And I was wrong. I was absolutely wrong because four had already come out. Uh, I think the fourth was about to come out that year when this dropped, which totally shifted my perspective. And I, I looked and apparently they'd gotten the rights. They tried to make the serious film. They tried to work with Eon Productions, the guys who were doing the other talks fell apart, which is why I'm back to my 
well then fuck you theory of filmmaking because that's what this this just got meaner and meaner they weren't lambasting bond they were trying to destroy it for everybody they were actively trying to sabotage the entire just franchise well i think there was there may have been some of that but there was also a lot of egos involved so like we 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 talked about it being indulgent well some of them i mean you first of all Peter Sellers and Orson Welles hated each other. The whole movie, the whole plot is supposed to be, as we know from the yeah. last Casino Royale, is about this this game of Baccarat, which uh, has Bond versus Lachif. Well, Sellers and Wells refused to appear together, and Sellers disappeared completely. Wells insisted on doing stage magic as Lachif. Like, that that was his <laughs> contribution to this. Like, he, he insisted his character would be a stage magician. What the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> so, there's an Orson Welles commercial from the 60s where he is obviously tanked. He is out of his mind drunk in front of the camera. And, and you can see him, he's trying to talk about this wine, and he's just tripping over himself, and he's Ah, the French. It's just the first thing he comes up with is, ah, the French. And I found that a much more compelling performance than this. Like, it was, it was weird. And can I just throw out there, there are a couple moments that enter onto this parabolic arc towards greatness. And I had to step back and think, oh, my God, is this super smart and I'm dumb? And then three minutes later, it's back to like, no, no, it's the, it's stupid. But, you know, somebody sane and sober grabbed the wheel for a minute. The scene where the uh, James Bond and Matahari's daughter ends up at the spy school and they cut into this weird artsy nouveau forced perspective. I was like, oh, my God, is this great? What's going This is making fun of the entire Oh my! And then, yeah, it was stupid again really soon thereafter. If the satire is too subtle or too well done, it runs the risk of reinforcing the exact thing it's trying to lampoon. So, for example, the scene where we're introduced to Matahari's daughter and she's in the belly dancing costume and she's dancing and it has this really terrible Orientalist vibe. And you almost can't tell whether it is making fun of James Bond for this kind of colonial attitude towards you know former british colonies or whether it is celebrating that and being like look and we got belly dancers isn't that wonderful and that you know in scenes here and there you can't tell like like the magic with orson wells like are they making fun of the villains for <laughs> being like unbelievable goofballs or is it actually saying this is a great opportunity to include magic in this film? And I felt like the I felt like Casino Royale was constantly going back and forth on either side of that line. And and with the comments about women also, like, is this satire or is it actually leaning into it by having all of these insanely gorgeous women in the in the movie? Let's just admit that Orson Welles demanding to do magic was no more incoherent than any of the other creative decisions made by <laughs> directors, right? Like this, by the time it gets to the Casino Royale, God, I want to say it's falling apart, but it's worse than that, right? Like the scenes don't make sense. People show up and disappear without announcement and stuff just happens because it's pretty i mean if you want to watch I, let me let me put it this way if you want to see one of the most amazing train wrecks in movie history 
please watch the last half hour. You can skip the rest. This, the rest tried to be funny, and on occasion it was. But the last half hour of this was amazingly messed up on every level. Like, it was kind of, like, noteworthy in that respect for being just Jesus take the wheel, right? <laughs> like... I'm telling you, there were parts of that movie that took me back to Barbarella. Am I the only one here? Well, I it, mean, it, it really took me back. Like the UFO, all the psychedelic spaces where they were. Why, why I mean, the fuck was there a UFO? I know. Like, like what? I, there were so many things in there. They were like, okay, this movie's a hot mess. Let's throw in a UFO. Well, you know, first of all, I feel the need to defend Barbarella because I like that movie. I, I love that movie. Barbarella. I love that movie. And that's why I was like, is this a nod? Or are they but it definitely has, yeah, it definitely has that weird swinging 60s, but at the start of Psychedelia thing going on where it's like, it's right, you know, at the start where things are changing and everything's in like Technicolor! <laughs> <laughs> Extra do. <laughs> Doubles, double Technicolor, like bonus, pr gratuitous Technicolor. Especially um, during the musical number. Are we going to talk about the musical oh, number we're gonna, in the film? Yeah, go, you go, go, talk about it. <laughs> no, I, I actually, all I wanted to say was I have had that song stuck in my head for the last two days since I watched it. And I just like, what is this song in my head? And then I think back, I'm like, oh, no. I'm sorry. But I was shocked. I, I like the the UFO was a surprise, but the musical number was also a surprise. Well, okay. G trying to get back to the plot. <laughs> Casino Royale Casino Royale in Casino Royale, there is a scene and people who have seen other versions of Casino Royale are, probably know what I'm going to talk about here. There's a torture scene. And in the the black and white one from the show Climax that we watched already. I mentioned it because they couldn't show it on TV. Even in the movies, they really can't show it because he's being tortured in his crotch, basically his balls. Uh, James Bond, that's in the book that made it into the 2006 version of Casino Royale. In the climax tv show it's not because they can't show that but it definitely stuff happens right below the threshold of the screen you can tell so they, they there's kind of a hint at it what the hell was up with the torture scene in this film <laughs> i don't know but again it had gone so off the rails by that point like yeah yeah i don't know Look, if you come, if you came to us today looking for answers, I, I don't think we've got any answers. Like just a list, a litany of complaints, right? Like none of it made sense the longer we did it. Yeah. Did you notice um, during the intro how the the animated letters and everything like that, and and you know the gratuitous, well endowed women that were drawn into the letters and an animated and everything. I mean, I almost wanted to watch that two or three more times to see what I would catch in the animations and everything. It was just, it was just weird. I was like, oh, okay. Um, because I knew, I, I, I purposefully went into this movie not knowing anything. I just wanted to watch it and experience it. I'm not a huge Bond fan. Um, so it was interesting going into this movie and I was like, oh, wow, this kind of reminds me of Monty Python 
and and their weird like 60s animations that they did and then you know as i was watching it and i i saw these uh you know how it was animated i was like oh okay it's going to be one of these kind of films and it was you know it did not it did not disappoint um as far as uh you know the objectifying of of, of gorgeous women in in the movie um and uh it was just i don't know i just thought that that was interesting too and that just kind of added to that whole 60s uh early psychedelic era vibe of it all i'm glad you mentioned monty python because i got a major castle anthrax vibe out of the scottish castle <laughs> in the beginning and i, I, didn't even I wanted think to about that that's so genius that is one thing it really seemed to have in common with the bond films is this sense of moving from place to place and each place is this unique exotic place that kind of sticks in your mind we already talked about the spy school but i wanted to dig more into the castle because it felt like after we left the castle it turned almost into a real film and that the the castle on its own was its was its own random world and and random piece of the movie that almost didn't need to be in there but you know it bonkers anyway so i, I wanted to hear what you all thought, thought of castle anthrax the scene is he shows up and then literally every single woman in the castle tries to, on some level, seduce him. And then he turns down the the mistress of that, the recently, the ostensibly recently widowed mistress of the house. And then she demands that he, you know, he's in now in some physical challenge with these giant buff Scottish guys. Yeah, challenge to wrestling match. <laughs> I... The thing I noticed, and I, like, at this point, I was still trying to take it seriously, right? At this point, I was still kind of in it to win it. They were creating this anti-bond. It was just him denying sexual temptation and then only winning a fight because of the incompetence of his opponents, not because of anything he had done until the very end. Like, everything happened to Bond but Bond didn't do anything through this point. And I found that very interesting. Again, they were kind of like, they were trying to flip the character. They were trying to create this other Bond that he wasn't super machismo. He wasn't. And had I not seen the rest of the movie, I would keep going on with that. But I was still, I still thought it was clever at that point, right? Like it had dated very poorly. Um, it, <laughs> it did not age well, but I at least got that they were trying to do something with a character that we already had expectations of. I wish I had kept track of things that, yeah, we don't joke about that now. Like, no, that's not cool. Like, it would have been in the several dozens of like, no, that's, that's we left that in the 60s, thank you. Um, but yeah, that was amongst them. And the castle full of underage women and the, yeah, the the Hitler jokes. Oh my God. And again, yeah. I had just finished watching Jeffrey Epstein's Filthy Rich on Netflix. I had just finished that series, and then I started watching this film, and it had the castle full of underage girls, and I was like, oh, God, I can't unsee this. I can't even unthink the things that I'm thinking right now. <laughs> it was just it, the, the, the creep level was a little bit too much there, and it's like that's something that would never, ever be acceptable today, to have a castle full of underage girls. It was basically kind of like a whorehouse. 
Okay, uh, I think we need to wrap this up unless anyone's got something well, why, burning. Uh, why, why don't we just throw in some random scenes for another 45 minutes and Orson Welles doing magic? And yeah, we could, we could stretch this out for easily to it. We have to justify a $12 million budget. Right, we need psychedelic hallways that change colors Wait. every time you change a name. Wait, who gave you a $12 million budget? I was under the. I who gave them a twelve million dollar budget? <laughs> I'm asking for twelve million in today money, not even twelve million then. I think they were given a six million dollar budget. They just took twelve. <laughs> so can I can I just bring up one more thing, which is um, the the fight scene at the end with with um, the cowboys and the Native American James Bonds Geronimoing into into and the Hitler set. and Frankenstein and. A bubble machine. Yeah. yeah. That yeah. was the fuck it point of the movie. They're like, fuck it. We're having everybody participate now. Did anyone else see it as a precursor to Blazing Saddles? I mean, it was oh. it was interesting. Just like I, I was like, wait, like this came before Blazing Saddles, but it definitely had that vibe to me. Yeah, it kind of paved the way for it, really. They've got these Indians. And I want to use the phrase Indians because like they had done two minutes Two seconds of research on Native Americans. They were using a stereotype. They were portraying a stereotype. They were jumping out of an airplane. And I didn't even have time to be offended at the tacit racism of the 60s before something else I didn't understand had happened. And I had to pro I had to process something else, right? Like that's it had a very postmodern feel to it in that I it just all started happening so quickly, none of it made sense. When I saw the Frankenstein walk across, I was like, okay, well, they just gave up at this point. We're trying to wrap up the movie and making make it as entertaining as possible. <laughs> People just started showing up with, like, things that you could film, and they're like, great, throw it in there. Like, just do it. Like, they put, this is years before Craigslist made flash mobs possible, but that would explain it. We have said more than this movie deserves. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not going to make this a long one because really, honestly, like I said, I hated it. I don't think it represents James Bond. I thought it was necessary to tackle because Rosie and I did one where we talked about Ursula Andress. Starting with episode 007, we've been doing Bond films and the and we had seen the previous Casino Royale. So we're going to put this to bed and next time do the 2006 Daniel Craig version of Casino Royale. Good. And I'm sure everyone will be happy to do that one because, <laughs> yes. Tr yeah. Tracy oh my did, God. Tracy did look over at me last night and say, is Eric mad at you? <laughs> 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 um, yeah well you didn't get you weren't here for red sun so the last one you did was tarzan right the last one i the last one i did was tarzan <laughs> the disney version she sat very patiently through that and she tried to sit through this and just had the common sense to fall asleep 45 minutes into it okay i wanted to i had to make myself stay up even my even my boyfriend rob was like hey hey <laughs> I, you, I believe you had a better viewing experience than I did. Yeah. Well, everyone, please find us in the iTunes store. Give us five stars, like, and subscribe. Tell your friends about it. You can email us. Tell us how much we're wrong about Casino Royale 1967. It is a brilliant film that we somehow <laughs> We missed. dare you. Do it. 
do it. We just might agree with you. So there. It's, our email is gc8podcast. That's letter G, letter C, number eight, podcast, all one word, at gmail.com. So anything you want to tell us about what's coming up? And maybe maybe you could reacquaint people with what Evil Island is. Evil Island is a collection of people I worked with in radio, and we are trying to do something a little bit more freeform than, you know, Oregon, rural Oregon public radio allows for. So it is more of a framework of people that are just trying to do stuff, and it's a bunch of creators who get together and write audio stuff and then make it. Right now, we've only got one series out, but we've got several kind of pitching back and forth. Great. Rosie? Well, I'm with the Black and Bluegrass Roller Girls, and uh, unfortunately, thanks to COVID, our season is canceled, but we are hoping for a 2021 season. I block and I jam. I block more than I jam now because I've been playing a long, long time. (laughs) Briggs and smack them. Briggs, letter N is a nasty, smack them. (laughs) <laughs> and you can find me on Facebook. I have my own skater page. You can check out the Black and Bluegrass Roller Girls on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, um, or go to nkyrollerderby.com. We're out of Northern Kentucky in the Cincinnati area. Johanna? I have nothing to plug this week, but I do have a recommendation. If you enjoyed Orson Welles' cameo in this film, and you enjoyed John Huston's cameo in this film, and you also like hopeless projects that tend towards satire and mockumentary, I recommend The Other Side of the Wind, which is Orson Welles' dream opus that he started in 1970 and never finished, but it was released on Netflix in 2018. And it is a bonkers film, a lot like the one we were talking about today. So I I recommend checking it out. The Other Side of the Wind. Is it better? (laughs) I hate that I'm considering watching it now. Like, I hate that you've sold it to me. But you've sold it to me. Yes, it's much better than Casino Royale 1967, but it is very weird. And seeing Wells and Houston together made me think like, oh, I wonder if they were already starting to work on this crazy project that that almost almost never got made. But um, yeah, it's on Netflix and I recommend it. Okay, so until next time, this is Eric. This is Nat. This is Rosie. This is Johanna. Take care. <laughs>